Greetings, guys. I've got a great show today, a special guest. We're going to talk about a special topic. I know that it's a topic near and dear to everyone's heart. That's polling. And so to bring on, um, uh, I've got a really great guest today I'm bringing on. He's a professor of political science in the Department of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a co-director of the UMass Amherst Poll, right? Um, and, uh, you know, this guy is, all, you know, like me, very well versed in literature around hyperpartisanship, polarization, political behavior, campaigns and elections. So I thought it'd be great to have a second perspective today, but also because I, I think it's important for us if we're going to talk about polling and we will touch on some of these big things that people are, are interested in, like why are the polls always wrong, right? But um, I think I really want to focus this show on some of the challenges that have been uh, introduced into the polling world, not just from response bias or measurement bias or, you know, internet versus landline versus cell phone sampling. Not, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about instead is how partisanship, hyperpartisanship affects mass op opinion and behavior and how pollsters, if they're going to do good research, have to A, understand that and B, adjust for it. And there is nobody, in my opinion, putting out polls in America right now that does better than this than UMass Amherst. So I'm so stoked to have Alexander Theodorus on the show today and to hear his perspective. Hello, welcome to The Cycle. Hi, Rachel. So great to, to be here uh, chatting with you. Uh, I, I also am an admirer of your work. And so uh, uh, we, always, we always appreciate it when you, uh, when you praise the, the polling that we're doing at UMass. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, I, leaving polling was bittersweet for me. I um, I really like polling. I like being able to use, to in, be innovative with it and to um, deal with these this workaround of how you know in a ma in a, a polarization is not a buzzword. I have said this many times on the show. It's an empirical, quantifiable difference in mass behavior and individual behavior. Um, that is, it's just marking this time period fairly unique. I mean, maybe the Civil War period in terms of mass behavior. And there just doesn't seem to be an acceptance of that in the polling industry by, by and large. And I felt like I was trying to lead them in that direction when I was working at the Wasson Center and doing a lot of Virginia horse race polling in particular. But I left that um, when I left the university I was at. And, and, and I was bummed. I was thinking, well, who's going to do good polling now? And then... I found Alex and I was like, oh, I don't even, they don't even need me. He, this guy's got it. He's got a hundred times better than me. So tell us a little bit about the most recent poll that you just did. I know it was on the presidential field. It, it deals with the insurrection and public opinion around that, especially looking at, um, you know, the partisan trends in that. Can you talk a little bit about this most recent survey and what you guys discovered? Yeah, we've got a, a lot of stuff, some of which we, we've just sort of uh, gotten into and some of which we haven't even gotten into yet. Um, but, uh, but you know, what, what I think some big takeaways are, um, from this poll is that, you know, the, the, the media, so the narrative after the 2022 midterms, uh, often you have this sort of narrative about why things happened, uh, and the party has to sort of decide, okay, why did, why did things not go the way we wanted them to? Uh, and, and Republicans were certainly in that position of trying to figure out, why they underperformed, because uh, uh, history, obviously, uh, but also the fundamentals would have suggested that Republicans should have won the Senate. They should have picked up a lot of seats in the House, uh, and they they clearly didn't do that. They they lost a ground in the Senate, 
um, and they, you know, barely, barely grabbed a, a, major, a majority in the House. And we saw the consequences of that on full display when uh, Kevin McCarthy was trying and trying and trying and trying to uh, become speaker and trying to wrangle his caucus. Um, and so a lot of, a lot, I think a lot of Republicans uh, wanted and the media wanted the lesson to be that, hey, Donald Trump is not good for us. Donald Trump is a, an albatross, you know, fettered around the neck of the uh, Republican Party's electoral, uh, uh, you know, f- fortunes. And I think that's an accurate characterization. Uh, I yes. think it's surprising that it would take them that long and that stark of a, of a failure to, uh, to recognize that. I mean, this guy's never won the popular vote. Um, and the party did very poorly, as you predicted, uh, you know, in, in his midterm election. Um, but even with all that, uh, it doesn't look in our poll like this is a Republican rank and file that is sort of uh, flying away uh, from Donald Trump, right? Yeah, uh, real willing to make the pivot, right? I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it's yeah. it's much harder to to get the average voter to sort of read the memo um, that, uh, that you know that hey, we're quitting Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not good for our uh, electoral fortunes, uh, as as true as that may be. Um, especially when you've you've basically kowtowed to this guy for all these years, right? That you can't just sort of suddenly say, okay, this guy's no good and, and we're moving away. Um, and so what we see is basically, you know, unchanged numbers from before um, before the midterm on a lot of things, things related to January 6th and the big lie. So Republicans, you know, continue to say that January 6th was a protest. This is after all the stuff the January 6th committee uh, revealed. Um, they continue to not blame Donald Trump uh, for January 6th, blaming, you know, Democratic Party and Capitol Police instead. Um, and, uh, and you know, they continue to not think Donald Trump should, should, be, uh, should be prosecuted in any way for his involvement. Uh, and they continue in massive, massive numbers to believe the big lie that the election was stolen. And, and really, when you talk about hyperpolarization, um, which we can get to in a minute, but I, I actually, I actually have a little bit different view from most people, which is that I think that that polarization is normal, um, and that the period we came from, where we weren't polarized, is the is the uh, anomaly, um, and so we should try to learn to live with it. But the thing that scares the crap out of someone when you when it comes someone like me, uh, when it comes to hyper partisan polarization is precisely that one side will decide they're not going to accept the results of an election. Um, and you, you end up with this sort of degradation of, of, uh, democratic norms and, and liberal democracy. Um, so we, we, you know, we find that the, that the rank and file are very much still sort of in the fold in terms of that. Most of them do not believe the party would be better off if Donald Trump um, if, if Donald Trump left, they don't think the United States would be better off if Donald Trump stayed out, got out of politics. Uh, only In fact, 10%. Alec, Alex, didn't you say, t- oh, I'm sorry, I just yeah. cut you off. Yeah. I was going to pull uh, that out. Like, yeah. uh, that 10, just 10% yeah. guys. Uh, Alex just released a pulse that was just fielded, right? Recently fielded yeah. after the midterms. And it just <laughs> 10% of Republican base, you know, rank and file respondents, which is probably about 30% of your sample or so, is, you know, was willing to say, yeah, this guy is killing us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, only 10%. They, they probably uh, think it's Kevin McCarthy and, and Mitch McConnell's fault, right? 
Only 10% of them blamed Donald Trump for the underperformance of Republicans in the midterms. Um, to, to contrast that, like 30% chose uh, the media bias, right? The, the, the mainstream yep. media bias as the reason. Um, uh, uh, 21% said that it was the uh, that it was uh, voter fraud, right? So that, that these sort of old standard um, greatest hits of uh, of uh, uh, justifications for for underperformance. So so you know in that sense we we see no real movement away from Trump. Uh, what I will say is that we do see um, uh, that that uh, Ron DeSantis does seem to have. Um, you know, have have really closed a gap uh, in a meaningful way with Donald Trump, both in a head-to-head uh, and in a sort of the full field kind of uh, kind Ooh. of poll. Yeah, so that I mean this 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 is the first poll that you've done that showed DeSantis has pulled up neck and neck in terms of of polling in that Republican primary, and I wanted to make good and darn sure that Donald Trump heard about that. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's very interesting. I know one of the reasons, one of the things I really would urge people to go and look at the um, UMass Amherst poll data webpage, because you're going to notice right away that they're presenting data in a way that that accepts partisanship, that opinion's no longer organic. I mean, it never was, right? Partisanship has always impacted and given like an in-group outgroup tribal posture to public opinion and you know that bush that buffett uh, bioed nixon in the 70s okay so that's, it's not we're not saying this is entirely a new phenomenon it's the it's the level and ex, an extent and extremity of that commitment that has changed and one thing that you'll see on this amherst site is you're going to notice the data is always presented not just in the top line but also down at the um cross tabs so that you can see oh okay only of people think Biden's doing a good job on, you know, whatever. But actually, that's because 0% of Republicans will admit that he's doing a good job on that, right? And I just think it really um, opens the eyes to how that partisanship factor affects opinion and views of of public figures and ultimately the vote. So when we talk about polling, obviously, I think the hottest topic in polling now is why is the polls always wrong, right? And uh, I talk a lot about you know, we're asking when it comes to, to horse race polling, I'm not talking about other types of polling, I'm talking about polling that is designed to tell us who's going to win a close election. Polling is constrained because it has this thing called margin of error, right? And when we're talking about a race that's going to be, you know, 48, 52, 49, 51, but, it, but the polling has a two, three, maybe even four point margin of error. It, it really does statistically mean <laughs> that the survey is limited in what it can tell us about the outcome of that race. Can you explain a little bit about how that margin of error should be interpreted? Because one of the things that shocked me when I first got into my PhD program, took my, my, my um, graduate stats um, course loads, and then started to get into survey data was that you know, we kind of developed a culture where where we are misrepresenting what polls, electioneering, uh, election polls can tell us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I actually go would go even further than that. I, I, I'm not even a big fan of the margin of error um, because I it, it's a massive understatement uh, of the of sources of error uh, in polls. The margin of error is literally only capturing statistically if you have a simple random sample. Um, and, and I'll get back to that in a second. But if you have a simple random sample, 
meaning that everyone in your in your in your population has the same exact chance of getting into your sample as everyone else. That if you have that simple random sample, uh, just in normal sort of you know randomness of draws, um, you you would have this much of a chance of having the wrong outcome or you know being being off by more than ninety five more than outside of the ninety five percent confidence interval basically. Um, you know, so as it is, social scientists we're, we're willing to accept a level of um, you know ninety five percent success. Uh, that's not something like civil engineers are willing to accept on bridges, let's say. But but right, but right. anyway, so God, right? yeah, yeah. So 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 that's all it's telling you, right? That's all it's telling, and really all it's telling you is how big the sample is because it's just a function of the yes. sample size. Um, exactly. And but the problem today is that we're outside of this golden era of doing public opinion work, um, and that golden era was characterized by. The ability to to draw simple random samples effectively over the phone because you could randomly generate phone numbers and most people answered their phone, right? Right. Um, and that and 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 basically that meant that you that you you know everybody you sort of had a situation where everybody had a phone basically. It wasn't like the '30s where only few people had phones, and and it wasn't like now where everyone has caller ID. Um, right. Or has multiple phones, or you know, has a home phone, but nobody answers it. All of these things, um, and so you really did have you know a case where you could draw that simple random sample, um, and that was the golden era. So like the eighties, early nineties, seventies of of polling, nineteen seventies uh, of doing polling. And I always tell students that um, that 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 caller ID and cell phones have destroyed two important art forms in our society. One is the art of conducting public opinion polls. The other is the art of uh, prank phone calling, uh, which I, I don't, I don't frankly know what teenagers do anymore. Um, just a, oh, are you a, kidding? I just had my house egged. I was so okay, happy. Well, there you go. So you got to so get a little honored. more. More. Yeah, like you know, I was telling uh, the neighborhood kids, are like, "Aren't you pissed off?" I'm like, "No, dude, I uh, totally might have might have been involved." Well, that's great. Things. That's great, though. They're actually like <laughs> prank phone calling. You're just sitting at home. At least they're getting some exercise. Walking. Yeah, around that's and, true too, right? Um, but I mean, it just makes you wonder. Like, are there still kids out there calling up bars and saying, "Hey, I'm looking for Seymour Butts." Yeah. Well, hey, in, a, in, a, in a in a in a bit in a bit of a digression, but I'll, I'll promise you the payoff is worth it. The best prank phone call I've ever. <laughs> Uh, been aware of is somebody called, and again, my name is Theodoridis. Um, yes. and, and the, somebody called my grandmother and said that they needed our permission. They were from the health board and needed our permission to, uh, use our name for the disease where people believe they're Theodore Roosevelt. Um, so I just think that's genius. So anyway, that, that art form, in addition to polling, has, has, has really fallen victim to the fact that people just don't answer their phone anymore. So, uh, we're now way out of this golden era where, you know, you can just call people and have this, um, you know, have this really nice, simple, random sample. So you're, you're now there's, there's a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot more involvement on the part of the pollster. You're doing polls online in a lot of cases. So you're, you're trying to recruit a sample in a very different yeah. way. If you're doing a phone poll, um, you know, I mean, you're, you have people sitting there for hours just to get one interview, right? And so this is not a random sample by any means. This is not a representative sample. So then you have to do all sorts of things in terms of figuring out how to weight the sample afterwards. So there's just a lot more involvement. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot more to it.
let's touch on that for the layperson a little bit, right? Yeah. So, like, when we think about these back, what, what, what uh, Alex is referring to is something called back-end weighting. So you collect a random sample, you do your best to make sure it's going to represent the thing that you're trying to measure. Let's say it's Virginia, since that's my state of most polling expertise. Well, then you, if you're measuring Virginia adults, that's easy. You look at the census site, you figure out what percent of the population is white, black, you know, women, men, young, old, you make sure you're regionally representing. So you want all your surveys from Nova. But when you're doing elections, it's really complex. And I think the first time we really realized how much complexity this introduces, I was talking to a foreign forecaster and they were like, hey, you know, I want to I want to talk to you about forecasting on U.S. elections. And so we talked a lot about persuasion and then we got to the shaping of the electorate. And I was like, this is what makes American election prediction hard is that you're not predicting the preference of a set population, you have to predict the out, like who's going to show up to cast ballots. And, and the reason I mentioned men, women, you know, different races, different uh, regions, is those things, demographic things about you, predict certain things about your opinions, behaviors, political preferences, and what have you. And so what Alex is talking about is like, okay, on the back end, even with all these errors and sampling and margin of error, I then have to take a thousand surveys and I have to try to guess what will be the youth turnout? What will be the black turnout? What will be the Latino turnout? What will be the female turnout? Because once I've specified to the computer those things, it's going to give you that survey result based on that version of an electorate. And if you get a different electorate, which we usually do because it's very hard to anticipate that, then it's going to further exasperate the problems of prediction for sur surveys used for prediction for outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, it's inc incredibly tricky. I will say with all of this, what's remarkable is how accurate the polls are. Given, yeah. given all of this, I mean, the and, and uh, like as you pointed out at the beginning, a lot of times the problem is that we're asking polls to do something they can't do, right? We're asking polls to. I mean, first of all, just just the 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 recognition of the fact which most people in the in the media don't have, you know, that that there's so much difficulty in getting in getting a sample, and then there's this issue in an election context, as you say, um, which we've always had, but it's become even more difficult of figuring out likely voters, people who are likely to turn out. Mm -hmm. um, and then in addition to that, you, you, you're not, your starting point isn't just a, a real sample of the population, a very representative uh, sample of the population necessarily. Um, and you add to that that you can make things worse. So like if you take, you know, if you say, okay, last time we missed, um, you know, uh, voters who were, uh, white voters without a college degree. So let's upweight them, right? Right. Well, if you're actually missing them, um, and what you have is white voters without a college degree, but they don't live in the rural areas, they live in the suburbs, and you upweight yeah. those people, well, it turns out yeah. those people vote more like white voters with a college degree, right? And so you're suddenly going to make your your the group that you are extrapolating to the larger group um, less representative of the larger group than, than your actual sample. So, you know, all of this is what leads to these, to these, um, you know, these errors, these cases where we, where we say, okay, why were the polls wrong? Um, and it's, as you say, it's, it's incredibly hard, especially at the state level, the national level is a little harder. The polls actually have been pretty accurate, um, more accurate than we like to think at the national level. But, but, you know, generally I would say that, that, 
you know, if you're looking at a poll to tell you who's going to win a 1% race, yeah. uh, you're asking the poll to do something it can't do. That's um, exactly right, yeah. Alex. I could not have put that better, right? I mean, that's the, the simplest way to describe it. It can tell you a race is going to be, you know, decided around 1% or 2%, or it can, it can tell you a race is not competitive, that one candidate has an advantage over the other, a significant advantage, or a steady advantage over a course of survey data from the same place, done the same modeling, same weighting, <laughs> same sampling, but it cannot tell you, especially not five of them aggregated into the 538 thing, you know, for CD2, who's going to win, okay? It just can't tell you that. So it's funny that you mentioned the golden age of polling, right? I was once sitting at a political science conference in the survey room, and I, um, you know, I recognize, I'm not, I'm not going to rebut the sampling issues. It is totally, you're totally right. It, I lived through the 80s. It was a I'm like one of those people who've lived both lives, right? Pre-tech, post-tech. And, um, you know, those things are, are exactly right. We are living at the truly difficult time to, to get these sampling frames handled. But it's a shame, and let me tell you why, because we are actually living in the golden age of survey construction. I mean, we have never produced better survey questionnaires and instruments in the history of polling. And, uh, you know, I suspected that was the case, but I did my dissertation on polarization and it involved looking at a lot of historic polling. And you get back to 2008 even, it starts to become pretty dry. And then by the time you hit 2000, there's nothing except for the NES election poll, <laughs> exit polling, you know what I mean? And it had like five questions and they're very generic. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I, put, I chose you to come and talk about surveys with is because you're doing such brilliant work on your instrument design. Can you talk a little bit about like as you come up with an idea of I'm going to put a survey in a field, how you're constructing your questions? and the questionnaire to try to maximize and, and, and uh, you know, really illuminate some information about the electorate. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, from, from the UMass poll perspective, one of the things we like to think we sort of bring to the table is um, basically the, the, the sensibility that you're describing of, how, you know, people who have studied this stuff, um, you know, from a scholarly perspective. We're not just trying to think, okay, what's going to be, uh, an interesting thing in the you know in, in terms of a news story. Um, obviously, we're right. part of the reason we exist is because UMass likes uh, likes for there to 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 get attention. But what we've learned is that a really good way for us to get attention is to is to uh, you know be in some sense that you know the fine wine of uh, of polling as compared to the you know crack cocaine um, <laughs> that 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 a lot of a lot of firms um, like to be so. Um, you know, one of those realizations is, as you say, that that uh, just in terms of how you analyze the data, you you know, looking at things without taking party into account is often meaningless, right? So you see these polls uh, where you're just looking at you know the average, and it and it basically is just a function of the party composition of the poll and who's you know who's in the party. So if you're saying like, oh oh look, young people support this, well, I'm much more interested in like what do young Republicans think and what do young yes. Democrats think, right? Yes. As opposed right. to just because because otherwise it's just composition. Uh, and to be clear too, with Alex, just to, because you, I'm sure Mass UMass is paying for this privilege. It takes a good, strong, end size sample size, survey size to be able to do that kind of 
of granular analysis because let's say the survey's margin of error is, is three, the crosstab just one level down, so breaking down presidential approval by party is going to add double that, basically double that error. Yeah, okay? yeah. no, you run into so you run into you, you, you lose power very sales. quickly. Right. And, and so many firms just aren't willing to spend the money. They'd rather run six shitty surveys than one that has a robust end size where you can tease out the data. And I just want to make sure that people understand the contribution economically that UMass has made by investing in this in this large N, you know, larger N yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. survey. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we have time series, obviously, that, that that's valuable. Um, so that's the first thing. The starting point is just there are certain things we've asked before. Um, and you want to get a time series on them. And that's what most, you know, poll, you know, like the ANES is, um, is, you know, very much constrained by that. Cause one of the big things they produce, that's the American national election study. It was used to be just the national election study before um, political scientists discovered that there were other countries. Um, (laughs) and, and, uh, and and so anyway, you have, you know, the, the time series is valuable. Um, in terms of coming up with questions, we just do a lot of, of workshopping with each other. I mean, obviously all of us are political junkies. We're also very well versed, um, in the literature and and the methods of of survey research and as you as you point out you know there's a long history of sort of figuring out what has worked what questions work what questions don't work some of that is personal experience right um you often don't know what's going to go wrong with a poll question until you field it um Mm -hmm. but other people have fielded things so we we know you know we, we all have this kind of background in understanding what what kinds of things to avoid? We've all taught students these things, um, and then and then sort of beyond that basic level, there's kind of the, you know, I, I for example, I, I like to see us um, really pushing the envelope in terms of using survey experiments, which is something that the media are not at all accustomed to, and so I always try to have several survey experiments in there um, because I think it's fairly easy to explain. Um, and also very, very uh, useful. You can really tease out what's happening, not just causally, but also descriptively uh, using uh, experimentation where you randomly assign respondents. And again, there you're, you're even less kind of, uh, you know, uh, captured by the, the precisely representative nature of your sample. And you can start, you know, asking questions um, both in terms of survey questions, but also intellectual questions, you know, that you're, that you're trying to ascertain the answer to that are, you know, where, that are really not limited to, okay, our sample was perfect, right? Um, right. where you can, you can look at t- patterns and trends in opinion, um, and bigger effects rather than just like, okay, this person's up by, you know, one percentage point. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, we have, like Ron DeSantis and Trump in a head-to-head in our most recent poll, DeSantis is up by by two points. It's fifty-one forty-nine, right? So a lot of places would make a big deal out of that. I I think that's essentially nothing. I mean that that's not a difference that I actually pay attention to. As well, a it's, that's because it's not a statistically yeah, it's, meaningful it's, difference. It's just not a it meaningful difference. They're tied. Right. They, they, the appropriate way to analyze that, and you would not hear this. And I don't think it's intentional. I think a lot yeah. of the TV journalists who do the polling reports, Chuck Todd, whatever, they're not taught this shit, right? Yeah. So it's not like they're trying to lie. Right. But what right. they should report that survey and what you did was that they're tied. It's a tie. Yeah, they're tied. <laughs> and the story is that over time, DeSantis has picked up, right, 
support because right. that's a bigger yeah. effect, right? That's yes. an effect that you can sort of appreciate and see. Um, and so, yeah, that's the that's the thing. And, and I actually push back on that because we, you know, we deal with the, you know, the PR people here and I talk to reporters all the time and I'm always pushing back on that because there is this tendency to be like, okay, well, well, DeSantis is winning. And it's like, first of all, okay, it, just in terms of the poll, you can't say that. But right. DeSant what does it mean that DeSantis is winning a year before or more than a year before there's going to be a contest and only Trump yeah. has announced and, you know, nobody else has meaningful support. And by the way, is DeSantis's support meaningful? How many of the people who, you know, are saying they support DeSantis actually know anything about DeSantis, right? Exactly. That, that other shoe has not dropped yet in terms of, yeah. you know, articles about DeSantis yeah, yeah. issues, et cetera, right? Yeah, yeah. All and we know from that is that and, and conversely, like the name ID differential, I would assume, based on what I learned in the 2020 Dem primary, is probably pretty low still, right? I mean, it's it's higher than everybody else's. So it's like there was Bernie and Joe at like 80, 90 headed into 2020. And then Elizabeth Warren was like 60. I would fe I feel like Ron DeSantis is the Elizabeth Warren right now in terms of name ID, because believe it or not, man, most, many people in America right now, you could walk up to them and say, who's Ron DeSantis? And they'd be like, I don't know. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and that's, and that's perfectly reasonable. They have about, right. they have about 20 other things that are going to impact their day more than learning, you and know, no gaining interest. encyclopedic yeah. knowledge about Ron the DeSantis. News. They don't watch the news. If you watch GMA, the top stories today on GMA were Priscilla, um, you know, the Elvis. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lisa Marie. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa Marie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a different world. So now you guys know why I wanted Alex to come on here to talk about polling in particular and not somebody else. I mean, just really well thought out survey research. Alex, tell these folks again where they can find your data. So if if you if you just search for UMass poll, um, you know through the UMass Political Science Department website, uh, our our data come up there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at at ag theodoritis. Um, so I release all sorts of you know images uh, r related to our polling. Um, and so, you know, we, th that's the, that's the, that's the place that's probably the, those are the best two places to, to reliably find, find our data. And we're going to link all of that stuff. Obvious. I'm going to link all that stuff up here in, in the blog. So, you know, if you, as you're listening to this, please follow Alex, follow the UMass poll, um, you know, give, give it some, uh, attention on your own social accounts. The data is really compelling. It's, it's presented in a way that makes a lot of sense, but it's also visually compelling. So I really would urge people to go check that out. Alex, thanks for coming on the pod today. Oh, of course. It was my pleasure.